0: It's always amazing to me how a couple of people can experience something so radically differently. A number of years ago, one of my favorite uh, humorists, his name is Dave Barry. Anybody familiar with Dave Barry? Raise your hand if you're familiar with Dave Barry. Okay, he's hysterical. He wrote a column about the guilt that he felt over how differently he and his young daughter experienced her birthdays. And I think most parents can relate to this. In this column, he describes his daughter's excitement about her birthdays and the birthday parties that she always gets to have. And then, of course, as any parent knows, those birthday parties come with lots and lots of toys. And this is where his guilt comes in. He writes, For weeks prior to her birthdays, I feel enormous anxiety at the prospect of opening those toys. Because in the last decade or so, the toy industry after consulting its lawyers, decided it was too dangerous to allow children to come into contact with toys. So the industry went to the Institute of Defense Packaging, which is the outfit that made it impossible to open an aspirin bottle without a hammer. He says, for toys, the Institute came up with a vicious system that involves attaching the toy to the package with dozens of nearly invisible twisted titanium wires, which are then covered with powerful adhesive tape after which everything is encased in thick weapons-grade plastic, that when you try to cut it with a knife, and trust me, eventually you will, it defends itself by turning into lethal shards that can slice your arm like a machete through a Twinkie. And of course, while you're grappling with this packaging, cursing, and bleeding, your child is in your ear asking, when can I play with it? When, 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 when? Can any of your parents relate to that? Or grandparents? Yeah, so gonna high. Here's the thing. It is very possible for two people to go through the same event and have two completely different experiences. It happens all the time. And I bring this up because in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus and his disciples have two very different experiences in the very same place. And out of these different experiences, I think there are some powerful things for us to learn as people who would like to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible with me, turn with me in it to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, And we have been spending time, those of you who have been with us for some time know that we've been spending time looking at the last days of Jesus Christ in the last half of the gospel of Mark. I want to start reading today in verse 32, Mark chapter 14 and verse 32. I want to remind you, it is Thursday night of the last week of Jesus' life. It is dark out, and in a few hours, Jesus will find himself hanging on a cross, And here's what happens the night before. I want to start at verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. By the way, Gethsemane was a garden in Jerusalem at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It was a place that apparently Jesus and his disciples visited often, okay? So they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples, and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and he prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. And then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts. You didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now here's something that I, I can promise you today, that whatever I say today will not do justice to this passage of scripture. This is such an important passage of scripture that we can spend a lot more time than we're gonna spend on it uh, this morning. So if I miss something that you think I should have covered or that you wish I would have covered, uh, forgive me, and maybe next time I'll be able to get to it. As you can see, Jesus and his disciples experienced the same place and the same situation in very different ways. So I want to look at this passage in this way. I want to look first at Jesus and Gethsemane, and then I want to look at the disciples in Gethsemane. So Jesus and Gethsemane, and then the disciples in Gethsemane. And I want to start with Jesus and Gethsemane. Now, without making the structure of this talk too complicated, I want to show you three things that I think are important for you to notice about Jesus and Gethsemane, and his, his experience there in Gethsemane. And the first one is this, that Gethsemane is a place of psychological agony for Jesus, notice how the text describes, describes him. It says that he is deeply distressed and troubled. The word that's translated "distressed" there means to be astonished. All through the Book of Mark, uh, Jesus has seemed to be completely unflappable. Always has everything under control. He anticipates things before they happen. You guys remember the, the the terrible storm on the Sea of Galilee? You remember that and they're in the boat and and all the disciples are freaking out. They think that the that the boat is going to you know they're going to all drown. And what's Jesus doing in that moment? He's he's like he's so calm, he's so relaxed. Uh, he, he's asleep in the stern of the boat. And yet here he is in this moment, astonished. And more than that, it says that he was troubled. That's a a word that means to be overcome with horror. And then in verse 34, he says that he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I just want you to see that this is a place of psychological anguish for Jesus. We'll talk about why in just a moment. But just notice that. It's a place of psychological agony for Jesus. Second, I want you to notice that Gethsemane is a place of prayer for Jesus. The agony and the horror and the sorrow drives Jesus to prayer. And undoubtedly, you know, we don't know everything that Jesus prayed, but Mark records uh, the gist of Jesus' prayers when he says in verse 36 that he prayed, Abba, Father, and he asked his father to take the cup from him. Now, what's the cup that he's referring to? Well, the cup that he's referring to is the cup of God's wrath. This is why Jesus is in such deep agony and horror. All through the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is a symbol. It's a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. Listen to this. This is Ezekiel chapter 23. He He says, you'll drink a cup of wrath, large and deep, full of ruin and desolation, and you will tear at your breasts. That's the wrath of God. Isaiah 51, you will drink the cup of his fury and you will stagger. This is why Jesus was horrified because he was facing all of the wrath of the holy and eternal God being poured out upon him against all of the centuries of human sin. One commentator described it this way. Listen to this. He said, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety that Jesus experienced in the garden was not just the shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. Thousands of other men and women faced that with poison peace. It was rather the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father and who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. And he staggered, and he tore his breasts. He was was horrified. You see, never before in all of eternity had Jesus experienced this. He'd always had this perfect relationship with the Father. And every time he turned to the Father in prayer, every time in his life on earth, love and joy flooded his life. But this time he finds nothing, the abyss. And he is staggered, and he is astonished, and he is horrified. And finally, would you notice that Gethsemane is a place of dreadful silence for Jesus. There were these other key points in Jesus' life that, if you recall, he heard a reassuring voice in heaven, like when he was baptized by John. You guys may remember that. The voice of God the Father said, this is my son whom I I love. And uh, a dove actually descends upon him. When he's in the desert, And facing temptation, angels come to attend to him. But here, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he asks that this cup of wrath be taken from him, there is no voice from heaven. There are no angels that come to attend to him. No dove. He meets the dreadful silence of heaven for the first time in all of eternity. Nothing is going to change. God's answer to his prayer is no. And what is so fascinating to me is that in spite of the horror and the agony that he feels, instead of trying to find some other way to, uh, to evade the cup of God's wrath, Jesus accepts God's will. And here's why I think that uh, this is so important that I wanted to draw it out this morning. I always go kind of nuts inside when someone says to me well you know Jesus was a he was a good man he was a he was a courageous man and uh, he lived a sacrificial life but he's just he's just one way to God there are all these other ways to God too Jesus is just one of them I want you to think about this for just a minute I've used this before some of you may remember this But I want you to just imagine for the moment that you and a friend of yours are on top of uh, one of the tall buildings here uh, downtown. And you and your friend are looking over uh, the side of that and just thinking about how far you would fall uh, if you were to slip. And imagine that out of the blue, your friend says to you, I want to show you how much I love you, and then just throws himself off the side of the building. What, What would you think? Would you think that was a sign of love? Or would you think that was a sign of being nuts? That's what it is. That would be nothing more than a sign of just being absolutely crazy. Nobody but a crazy person does that. But imagine that as you're looking over, you somehow slip. And just as you're falling, your friend grabs your hand But your weight begins to pull him over, and only one of you is going to survive. And somehow he pushes you to safety while he falls. What would you think then? It's completely different, isn't it? What would you think then? A person who doesn't have to die, but does, is nuts a person who dies because it's the only way for you to live, that person is a hero, isn't he, or she, right? Here's my point. If there was another way for salvation to occur, if there was another way for you to be saved, say, you know, by being a good person, or through Buddha, or Muhammad, or someone else, Jesus then, if if those ways were possible, then Jesus would be nothing more than another nut for having died on a cross. He wouldn't be an exemplary man. He wouldn't be a sacrificial man. He would be a nutcase. The only way that it makes sense is if there were no other way, then Jesus becomes the most beautiful example of love in the history of humanity and the only way to God. When Jesus suffers horror and anguish and then he meets the silence of heaven in the garden of Gethsemane and he still chooses to submit to God's will for him, it's because there is no other way to God than for the sins of humanity to be paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only reason that he would suffer the anguish of the cross. Jesus said it himself, that he is the truth And the light, the way, and no one shall pass to the Father but through him. If he died on the cross just because he wanted to, he's a nut. If he died on the cross because there was no other way, then he is the Savior, the Savior. Of the world. Okay, that's Jesus' experience at Gethsemane. Now I want to look at the disciples' experience at Gethsemane, the disciples and Gethsemane. And again, their experience at Gethsemane is very, very different, isn't it? Jesus had one experience, and the disciples have a completely different experience. And I want to, I want to show you a few things about their experience. First, Gethsemane for them is a place of sleep. It's a place of sleep for the disciples. At least for the three of them that Jesus brought with him. Now, for Jesus, it was a place of agonizing prayer. But for the disciples, it was a place of sleep, even though Jesus had told them to pray twice. Now, I, I, I don't want to make fun of the disciples. Because I've had this very same thing happen. I'm going to tell you guys, you know, I I have ADD. And so prayer, uh, for me, is a very difficult thing. Sometimes I will go to prayer with the best of intentions. And I start out and I'm praying. And then all of a sudden my mind starts to wander. And something out of nowhere pops into my head. Like Swiffer, the Swiffer picker-upper. Or something like that that I don't know where in the world it came from. Why did that come into my mind? Or maybe, maybe I'm kneeling down and I'm and I'm and I'm praying, and 30 minutes later I wake up in the same position. You ever had that happen? Right. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rail on these guys for this. I'd feel like a hypocrite. But I do want to point out that three times Jesus returns and he asks them, Are you asleep again? And each time he wanted them to pray. And here's my question: What is it? that Jesus knows that the disciples didn't know and that quite honestly we don't know about why being in prayer is so important? What is it that he knows? And see, I I think this is what it is. Jesus knows that Satan is looking to devour these men. You remember that uh, just a few verses before this passage, Jesus had told Peter and he told the other disciples, he said, said, in my hour of greatest need, all of you guys uh, are going to abandon me. And Peter says, no way, not me. Everybody else, these guys, they may abandon you, but I'll be with you, right? But Jesus says to him, yeah, Peter, uh, you are, you're going to uh, abandon me. Because he knows that Satan's power is greater than Peter or all of the disciples' self-confidence. Now, had the disciples known what Jesus knew, that Satan was seeking to devour these men, I suspect they wouldn't have been sleeping. I suspect that they would have been praying with a sense of urgency and a sense of desperation. But in their self-confidence slept and see I think I think if we knew the reality of evil and the power of evil and believed that Satan is prowling about looking for someone to devour I suspect all of us would pray more too I do let me ask you moms dads grandparents let me ask you this would you pray more for your children Or your grandchildren, if you knew that Satan wanted them. Would you pray more? Because here, I want to tell you something. Moms, dads, grandparents, I want you to know that Satan is after your children. They have a target on their back. He wants your child, he wants your grandchild. And there's nothing that you can do. You aren't powerful enough. You aren't a good enough parent. You aren't. There's nothing that you can do to stop that. Does that make you want to pray more? A little more urgently? A little more desperately? Husbands, would you pray more for your wife if you knew that Satan wants to devour her? Wives, how about your husbands? Would you pray more for them? If you knew that Satan is after him, to destroy him, now, I, you know, listen, you, you can think that what I'm saying as I talk about Satan, you can say, uh, you know, that's, like, Jeff, that's, come on, That's that's over the top. Nobody believes that stuff anymore. You can say, well, that sounds primitive. But the personification of evil in this world is very real. And he is after the ones that you love And nothing that you can do in your own strength can resist what he wants to do to you and what he wants to do to the ones you love. So don't allow yourself to rest in your self-confidence. Pray for them and pray for yourself with a sense of urgency and with a sense of desperation. Later in his life, Peter, who made this great big bold promise that he would never leave Jesus' side... And yet Jesus finds him sleeping instead of watching and praying. Later in his life, Peter's gonna write this. He writes, be alert. writes to a group of people that are suffering. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now where do you think he learned that? In such a powerful way, that years later, he wanted to write it to the people he loved. It was here, at this moment, that Peter learned that his self confidence was nothing and that there is an enemy who is very real that is looking to devour you. Here's something else I want you to see about the disciples' experience in Gethsemane Gethsemane is a place of failure for the disciples. It's a place of failure for the disciples. There's Judas, one of the 12, who had lived in Jesus' presence for three and a half years, who kisses Jesus literally with the kiss of death. And then in verse 50, it's written like a solemn epitaph on the self-confidence of all the disciples. Verse 50 says that then everyone deserted him and fled. Every single one of them, Peter, James, John, and all the rest of the disciples, they all left him at his moment of greatest need. And the obvious conclusion that we're to draw is that their self-confidence, of course, led to this spectacular failure. That's the obvious point. But I think there's something else here, too, that I want you to see. These men who failed so miserably in this hour will also become the leaders of Jesus' movement after his resurrection. These men will die for the Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. What are we to make of that? I want you to listen to me. We'll put it up on the screen. This is really important, folks. I hope you get this. I hope you write this down. Make a note of it, something. This is, if you forget everything else I say today, remember this. The great basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. Do you understand that? These men failed so miserably, and yet God still uses them after the resurrection to be the leaders of the church. The great basis of Christian assurance is not how much my heart is set on him, how good I am, how perfect I am, how courageous I am, because I'm none of those things. The great assurance, the great basis of Christian assurance is how unshakably God's heart is set on me. That never changes. And if you understood that great news, if you understood how great that news is, uh, everyone here would have stood up and shouted amen. Because men and women, there is not a one of us here who would have been with Jesus in this hour either. Every single one of us here would have abandoned Jesus in this hour. We've all abandoned Jesus anyway, have we not? We're all sinners here. We're all inconsistent, erratic, unreliable, messy disciples of Jesus. We're all moral failures here. Our hearts are set on God in the hour that we spend here in church this morning. But let temptation hit us even two hours from now, and we may well be found running away from Jesus too. And if you look at yourself this morning and you find any assurance of your salvation in your moral performance, you're not looking at yourself with honesty. Once again, the great basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah. One last point that I want to make that I didn't tell you about earlier. How is it? See, I didn't tell you this because I just—I wanted to just kind of give you this as, as, a, as a surprise, okay? How is it that God can have his heart set on a moral failure like me? How is it that he can use someone like me, so unreliable, So inconsistent, so up and down in my relationship with God. Sometimes believing and sometimes losing all of my faith. Falling asleep in my prayers. Letting commercials enter my mind uh, during prayer. All of the things. How could he possibly have his heart set on someone like me and then use me? And how can he have his heart set on someone like you and use you too? How can that happen? Write this down. It's because of the sword and Gethsemane. We talked about Jesus and Gethsemane. We talked about the disciples and Gethsemane. Here's the last point. I'm gonna conclude with this one. The sword and Gethsemane. When Jesus gets arrested, you saw it in the passage. Judas brought with him a crowd of people, and, and, and it says that they had swords. And then you got this deal with someone who gets their ear cut off by a sword. And then you get to the end of this passage, and you got this thing about this young guy who who's, uh, he, he, he gets caught by these guys, and he, he's so scared, he's so petrified, that he sheds his clothes and runs away. And he's just completely naked. Okay. What, what is all of that about? Well, There's this very old tradition that this young man who flees uh, naked is Mark himself, the writer of this gospel, who would have been a young man at that time, and who was saying, I was there and I was as bad as everybody else. See, everybody has failed Jesus here Judas and Peter. The insiders, the disciples, the outsiders, the violent people, the nonviolent people, the religious people, the irreligious people. There's no one righteous here, no, not one. They have all failed. And in his little commentary on the book of Mark, N.T. Wright says that by all of this stuff, the sword and all of that, Mark is trying to remind us about another garden. In the Garden of Eden. There were these people, two people, who were given a test, and they failed, and they realized they were naked, and they fled God's presence in shame. Now, here we are, centuries later in this text, and in the... Garden of Gethsemane, there's another test. And again, everybody's failing. And this guy is stripped naked and they're leaving in shame. But something is different in this garden. In the middle of this garden, there's a human being who is passing the test. And it's an incredible test because if you think about, well think about this. Why were all these other people fleeing? Why was everybody fleeing? Why were why were they all failing? The reason that they're failing is that they're afraid of the sword. And by sword, I don't mean just one sword. I mean the sword of the Roman government. They're afraid of the Roman government. They're afraid they're going to be killed. They're afraid somebody's going to arrest them. They're afraid of the sword. But Jesus Christ is standing firm, and he's facing something even worse than the sword of the Roman government. When Adam and Eve fled naked from the garden, just covered with fig leaves, they turned around and they realized that there was something at the door to the Garden of Eden that was keeping them from ever going back. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, it was a sword. An archangel, a cherubim, had a flaming sword that was turning left and right. No one could get back into the presence of God without going under that sword. What was the sword? It was divine justice. Our sins separate us from God. There's no way back into the presence of God unless someone goes under the sword and takes that divine justice. Buddha couldn't have taken that justice. Mohammed couldn't have taken that justice. There is only one who could. And if he hadn't taken it, God couldn't set his heart on moral failures like me. But here's why God can have his heart set on moral failures like me and you. Because Jesus Christ reversed places with me and with you. See, all of the people who've let Jesus down, who failed him, they're all, they're all going free, even though they disobeyed. And Jesus is being seized even though he obeys. He shifted places with us. He's getting what we deserve so that we can get what he deserves. And when you see the great reversal at the cross of Christ, when you see the sinless son of God hanging on a cross, there's the answer to why God can have his heart set on moral failures like you and me. Because Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin and for your sin. And we can have a relationship with a holy God only because of that. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads with me. If you're here this morning and you have thought to yourself, oh, there are many ways to God, I'd like for you to just, for the moment, stop and think what does it mean when a man voluntarily dies on a cross if there are all sorts of other ways that people can come to God? Why would he do that? If you're here this morning and you've been trusting in your moral performance, For a relationship with God, would you just take a look inside and would you just recognize, would you just take a good, hard, honest look inside and just recognize, hey, you may be a good person, you're probably a better person than me, but would you take a look inside and would you just recognize that you're not perfect, that you're not sinless? And then ask yourself, how can sin be in the presence of a perfect God? And the only if someone comes under the justice of God. That's it. Under the sword of God. And that was Jesus. And he did it for you. If you're here this morning and you're thinking God could never love a person like me. If you just, you know, if I if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't even want me to be here in your church. Would you just know this? great basis of Christian assurance is not how firmly our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his hearts are set. His heart is set on us. This would be a good morning if you fall into those categories to sort of internally bow your knee before the throne of God and before the cross of Jesus Christ to confess to him that you're a sinner, to confess to him that perhaps you have thought for many, many years that he's just one of many ways to eternal life and to a relationship with God. Would you just acknowledge the first time that, Lord Jesus, you are the only way. I need a Savior. Be mine. The Bible says that if you do that this morning, that you have eternal life. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to do anything like that. Just in the privacy of your seat, privacy of your heart you can make that decision this morning and finally if you're here this morning and you you know you 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 have trusted in Christ you believe that but you've gotten into a place in your life where you're wondering you know how could it be that God could love someone like me because you look at your performance now would you just remind yourself that it's never been about you it's never been about your performance it's always been about Jesus who substituted his life for years. Would you trust in him again today? Not like you're going to be saved in a new way, but would you trust in him for the assurance that his heart is still unshakably set on you? Would you do that now? Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for these powerful, powerful truths that, frankly, we don't live by Frankly, we don't internalize, we don't preach to ourselves enough, but Lord Jesus, we thank you that you went under the sword of divine justice, and you did it for us. You did it for me, a moral failure like me. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray.